A good ally isn't focused on whether they're looking like a good ally. W-A-L-T, it's the Midnight Disease. Sam Dingman coming to you on the Electro Voice RE20 via the Avitas MA5, the Harrison 32 EQ, and the RNC500. Analog tones on a Wednesday afternoon in the moon cabin. Folks, today on the show, I'm talking to novelist Patricia Park. She is the author of Re-Jane, a modern-day retelling of Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre, and most recently... Patricia published Imposter Syndrome and Other Confessions of Alejandra Kim, which is the story of a teenage girl named Alejandra Kim who is trying to navigate two very different worlds, a Quaker prep school in Manhattan and the working-class neighborhood in Queens where she lives. And Patricia is currently working on her third book, which is in a roundabout way how she and I got in touch, or I should say back in touch, Patricia and I actually went to college together. I hadn't seen her in years. And then one night I was at the Moth here in New York, and I ran into Patricia, who, as you are about to hear, was there doing research for this new book. And for Patricia, book research turns out to be a very personal, very intensive process. And I think it's one of the many reasons that her books feel so alive on the page. So... A few weeks ago, she came by the moon cabin to tell me about how she does it. And that is what you are about to hear on WALT. Patricia Park, welcome to The Midnight Disease. Sam, thanks so much for having me. I like to start these... All the same way, which is to ask, um, if you think about this phrase, the midnight disease, and you think about your writing process, and you picture yourself in the throes of what you would imagine the midnight disease to be, what image of Patricia Park comes to mind? It's insomnia. It's lying there, staring up at the ceiling and thinking through the reel of of what your characters are going through or, or tossing them into into fictional hypotheticals. Um, what would Alejandra be like if she were waiting for the the M15 or mm-hmm. if if her seven train were delayed? Yeah. Um, oh, wait, why did I write that? Oh, I was such an idiot. I should have done this instead. She would never say that. What would she say instead to her estranged mother or so forth? So, you know, you're just kind of that kind of neurotic, uh, endless hamster wheel go- spinning in your head. Yeah, I if I, if I may, implied in that answer is a sense that you feel a lot of accountability towards your characters. I, I know we talked about this previously over coffee, but the reason that you have been taking to the stage in storytelling environments and stand-up environments of late is very interesting. And I wonder if you'd be comfortable saying what has what has brought you to the stage. Um, I'm, I'm doing novel research, um, you know, 
some act- actors do method acting, and I think as novelists, as writers, uh, method writing is is um, underrated, or we, we don't talk about that enough. I'm working on a, a story about an aspiring stand-up comic. Uh, she's a young Asian-American woman who's trying to find her voice, and I don't know. It, it's my own imposter syndrome. I would love, oh, Sam, I would love, love, love to be the kind of writer who's like, I know like 30% about a topic, so I'll just write 400 pages about it. No biggie. <laughs> I would love that. But for, for me, un- unless I feel I have a, a mastery of a, of a subject or um, even 60, 70% won't cut it for me, I'll still feel like my body will betray me mm-hmm. with every sentence I write. Uh, so, so I feel like I, I owe it to just understand the the inside and out of, of a character to to go mm-hmm. to go humiliate myself on the public stage. <laughs> yeah. Wait, before you go further with that, you just said something really fascinating. You said my body will humiliate me with every sentence I write. What what does that mean? Does that mean you can feel yourself lying when you're writing? Yeah, the betrayal would be kind of almost corporeal. I would feel like I'm um, not being authentic or that mm-hmm. I'm fudging it. And mm-hmm. how ironic, because I'm a fiction writer. I should be able to fudge everything, right? right? It's right. all fiction. But I know myself, and I'm going to be like, ooh, you know, like a very concrete example would be like, if you never took the 7 train, and I grew up, you know, the 7 train was my lifeblood, and you never took the 7 train, and then you were writing a scene where a character is on the 7 train, and then the train is making an express stop at 74th Street, right, Roosevelt? If you never wrote it, and you were not a writer like me, you'd be like, all right, no big deal, 7 Train, 74th Street. Yeah. But I, I as a reader, would know because 74th Street's a local stop and hello, or you know, or you didn't get that it was an outdoor station versus an mm-hmm. indoor station, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then the transfer to this and to that. And I think as a New York City kid, like logistics make me pissed off. <laughs> like logistics <laughs> that, that get messed up make me pissed off. Mm-hmm. And now I'm realizing, Sam, I just came on here to rant because everything is <laughs> No, no, I, honestly... Patty, this is like this is the stuff as far as I'm concerned, because you're writing, if I may, thrums with this amount of attention to detail. It seems like part of what animates you is the fact that when those details aren't there in other writing, it is frustrating for you because you feel like somebody skipped a step or or like didn't do their homework. Yeah, like I once read this novel that had a metro card in it and it took place before metro cards were invented and it was yeah. still the token system and mm-hmm. I got so mad. So maybe it's really my biggest fear that I would meet another reader like me mm-hmm. who would call me mm-hmm. out on BS. Yeah. And uh, so I'd never get anything done if I... <laughs> yeah. Are you a fan of... I bring this quote up all the time, but um, and maybe you've heard it before, but are you a fan of um, David Simon? Uh, no, I, I'm not familiar with, with his work. He did the wires the thing he's best known for oh okay um, yeah and he yeah, in I'm, an a, interview. I'm a little behind <laughs> <laughs> that's okay you've you've been doing you've been writing your own fiction <laughs> i've been a little uh, analog these days yeah <laughs> <laughs> but he said once in an interview he got a note from a tv producer at some point earlier in his career and that said like his work was too specific and that he needed to make it appeal more to the lowest common denominator and he said it, these are his words fuck the lowest common denominator <laughs> I don't wake up at night in a cold sweat. And this is actually the exact language you use to talk about the midnight disease. I'm just realizing. He's like, I don't wake up in a cold sweat in the middle of the night worrying what some generalized viewer thinks about my work. I wake up in a cold sweat worrying that somebody who lived the world that I am writing will watch my work and be like, no, he doesn't get it. Here, here. You know? Yeah. I'm I'm snapping if you if you can't hear that, but yeah. yeah. 
it seems like you have a similar sense of fealty. Yeah, and I, th- I think it's those, you know, the devils in the details and, mm-hmm. and the textural. I think we could size people up based on the way that they're like paying for their apples at Whole Foods or mm-hmm. something or mm-hmm. whether they choose to go to a Whole Foods or how they stand in online, online because I'm a New Yorker, not in line. <laughs> There's co- another specific. I know I had a copy editor who tried to like, who tried to <laughs> neutralize my language. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I'm uh-huh. like, oh, alas, aha. Uh-huh. Um, so, so Yeah. So back to performance and method writing, as you called it. Yeah, I'm fascinated by work. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm fascinated by profession. So with this forthcoming or this novel that is still very nascent about the comic, um, I'm yeah reading a ton of memoirs, um, going to a ton of performances, Mm -hmm. trying my own hand at it. And with imposter syndrome, which um, you know explores the Korean Argentine American experience. I did a few research trips to Argentina, um, visited like the Korean communities in Buenos Aires. But um, before all that, I, I'd sent myself to Middlebury College. Mm-hmm. They have a famous or infamous language school. <laughs> you spend like two months in like the whitest part of Vermont um, and you sign a language pledge where you will not read, write, speak or listen to any other language. Mm-hmm. Um, in there, I was there to study Spanish. Um, I had like high school Spanish, but... Um, I wanted, I specifically studied with two Argentine professors so that I can get the jeismo, the, the Argentine uh-huh, um, uh-huh. accent and, and well, dialect in quotes so that I could do research and do interviews with native Argentines and, and read, read um, source material to kind of help shape this world. All for what? For like a stray detail or two, you know? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, that you've anticipated my next question is if I'm hearing you right, you were working backwards from the end state of this book, which you knew was going to be about portraying this particular community. And you knew that you were going to want to do interviews in Spanish with folks from this community. And you knew that in order to do that, you should go and do this immersive language program all in service of for a book. YA novel. <laughs> For a YA novel. <laughs> Set in New York City in a senior, like, about a senior in high school. Yeah. I mean, did you have a deal to write the book at the time you did that research? Oh, hells no. No. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think so. Even at this stage, you know, I had, I had a, a, you know, a, a decently successful first novel. And, uh, you know, there's nothing you're, there are no guarantees. It's not like, oh, doors suddenly open and what's up? We want to publish Patricia Park all over the place. Mm No. Um, To be fair, I was actually working on the story of, uh, in imposter syndrome, the the main character, Alejandra, I was working on a story about her father Mm. um, and he was coming of age during the the dirty war in in Argentina. And so I was doing a lot of research. Uh, I I needed to do Argentine research, uh, history research. And um, had written his story, and that was an adult novel. And then there was – it was multi-generational, so there was like a a 60-page chunk that I wrote in, in Alejandra's voice way mm-hmm. back over a decade or so ago. And when you look at documentaries like the BBC documentary, The Supersizers, where these two journalists spent one week recreating a, a a period of time. They live like the Tudors. Uh, mm-hmm. They dressed in, in Tudor fashion. They – inhabited the gender roles of whatever class they were assigned to for a week, recreated the diet. 
Um, and I, I'm just so fascinated by these kinds of experiments. I don't have the resources to, like, recreate myself as a tutor, you know, mm-hmm, <laughs> tutor mm-hmm, royalty mm-hmm. or a lady-in-waiting, mm-hmm. you know, and go live in a castle for a week um, and, <laughs> and eat a pheasant. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I don't know. I, I think there's something that seeps into the, the culture. And I really, Sam, I do think it just ties back to my own imposter syndrome. But can I ask you something about this? And I don't mean to be like this to be like a provocative question, but but you're reminding me of uh, when I first moved to New York, I wanted to be an actor. Every fiber of my being, it's it's all I wanted to do. And my like equivalent of what you're talking about is I would be preparing a character for a scene study class. And the character would be the kind of person who hung out outside of a laundromat smoking cigarettes. So I would spend an afternoon hanging out outside of a laundromat in a costume like the character would wear, smoking cigarettes, trying to make little passing conversation with people walking by. And at the end of that day, I would say to myself, like, well, this is time well spent because now when I get into my scene study class, this wasn't even for a play that anybody was going to see. When I get into my scene study class, the performance will be informed by this methody stuff that I was doing. But there was always this little voice in the back of my head that was like, you better end up becoming a professional actor or else what you just did today was pathetic or stupid or a waste of your time or bad for your lungs or, you know. Do you have that voice when you're at Middlebury, say? Oh, my God, Sam. Every day, every second, there is maybe part that's part of the midnight disease. Every second, there is that voice in the back of my head that sometimes moves to the front and is like, what are you doing? You're wasting time. Mm -hmm. And I think especially for someone like me, who's a children of immigrants. Mm -hmm. And from day one, we were I knew how much my parents had sacrificed to make my existence even possible, let alone an artistic life? Ah, forget about it. Mm -hmm. I can never shut off the, oh, well, you know, kids I went to church with, um, that I went to high school with, um, my siblings who went into kind of more has an ROI on your actual investment (laughs) (laughs) kinds of fields. Um, And, (laughs) you know, and then they they start families, they they build careers and homes. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I just... I just cracked that paragraph today. And yet that is the path you chose. So did you struggle with making that choice? And how did you arrive at the feeling that this was going to be your version of whatever you felt like the responsibility was? Yeah, I mean, I'm very lucky in a few respects. I'm the youngest of three. um, And so my siblings did the the kind of things that make... Um, immigrant parents proud kinds mm-hmm. of paths, mm-hmm. science and business. And my sister went to Harvard, so that kind of got me <laughs> out of that card. Uh-huh. Um, but actually, what really drives me, Sam, is that I saw so many in my community. You know, I was born and raised in Queens, and I grew up within the the Korean diaspora community. And I saw so many families, so so many in my community who were struggling, or there were battles that they were fighting on a day-to-day, but their stories were never told. When you think of something like, you know, Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby, great American novel, and and Queens is a dusty gas station pit stop. Um, mm-hmm. And our, our literary legacy is, quote, the Valley of Ashes. And then a minority story within that, like I just saw too many instances of this. So I felt I felt a sense of responsibility, like who is telling my community stories? Yeah. Um, and if one of us doesn't tell them, then they'll be forgotten. 
And so am I correct that you're you're growing up in New York City and you are a reader. You're reading stories like The Great Gatsby and you're connecting with the narrative element, but the reflection of your experience, it feels like a missing piece in that experience. I think like what would really kind of be indicative of this is that as a sixth grader, I was reading Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre, right? And mm-hmm. I saw myself in Jane Eyre because I was like the next mm-hmm. closest proxy <laughs> to mm-hmm. my mm-hmm. experience. So like an orphan living, a white female orphan living in Victorian England mm-hmm. was like the next <laughs> the next best thing. This is the closest I could get to fi- seeing myself in literature uh-huh. to the point that, you know, I'm a Jane Eyre fangirl and um, my, my first novel was a, a Korean-American queen's retelling of, of Jane Eyre. But really because, yeah, it was like Gatsby. I was a big Vonnegut reader. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, you know, Kurt and I, you know, we don't have like that much in common. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then and then Charlotte Bronte <laughs> right, right. published like, you know, 200 years ago. <laughs> so do, do you remember for yourself when you were in middle school, high school, and you're reading things like... Uh, Bronte and Vonnegut and loving something about it, even if it is missing, even, you know, to your point, you're like, (laughs) I I have to imagine myself into this incredibly (laughs) distant thing. What was it about writers like that that you connected with and that made you want to write stories that somebody like you could see themselves in? Particularly with with Jane Eyre, um, we have a first-person narrator and there's just such a freshness to Jane Eyre's voice. Like, she's this ultimate underdog. She self-describes as poor, obscure, plain, and little. And that really connected with me, even though we were almost 200 years apart, an ocean apart, um, not the same race or culture. I love stories about underdogs, people who didn't belong. When you first decided to try your own hand at writing stories of your own— what kinds of stories did you find yourself writing? Were you writing somewhat autobiographically from the beginning, or did you start elsewhere? Yes, and I think that's part of why this like new exercise with stand up um, and and story live storytelling is so interesting to me because I had so many years of writing writing essays or writing scenes from you know in this kind of David Sedaris style of humorous <laughs> mm-hmm. family stories and 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 growing up that I, I didn't I, I didn't know what to do with fiction can be very freeing in that um especially with narrative nonfiction you have to you're struggling to find the shape and the sense of of a roller coaster journey right or or some kind of a container or structure for your story and sometimes life is just Sometimes yeah. life is just life, right? Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and you're like, oh, if only I could like invent this thing that happened, then whatever. So in that sense, fiction is freeing. And and the characters that I do write about, we all come from the same community, you mm-hmm. know, ethnic Koreans from Queens. But it's not; these are not my diary entries. They, I have imagined their lives. I've actually written their diary entries yeah. as more part of, I guess, maybe method writing, but to try to get a sense of their voice. This is mm-hmm. me, my like writerly equivalent of sitting with the yeah yeah. With the cigarette in front of the yeah. laundromat in Astoria, me being a, a Sam Dingman, the actor. <laughs> <laughs> well, so that's one of the things I wanted to ask you about imposter syndrome in particular is you do this really wonderful thing at the beginning. I read The Galley. I don't know if this is in the, the final version where you have a note at the beginning from yourself to the reader, which says in so many words, if I tell me if I'm getting it wrong, this is about a character like me. She's not me, but we share a lot of experiences. 
And that's one of the reasons that it's important for, to me to tell her story. So then this interesting thing is happening, which I quite enjoy as you read the book, where you're kind of thinking to yourself how much of this really happened to Patty without asking you to, you know, go through point by point and say, like, this was real, <laughs> this I made up, this was real, this I made up. I'm curious to know how you approach the, the challenge of, I think of it as like giving yourself permission to let your own experiences be a starting point. I have found that in the early drafts, maybe I lean on some of my my own direct experiences. Uh But I find that actually, it it turns out my own life, the specific details that happen in my life, in the end, they're not that interesting. So I trust that I will come up with something even better. Um, Okay. And and some of them do stay. um, And, you know, there are some details like, all right, actually, some version of that did did happen. And and this this has Mm -hmm. been changed around. But I think it's fine to, yeah, shorthand off of your your experiences. And then and then later, as you're as you keep going through more and more drafts, you realize, oh, wait, I need to prioritize this storyline over this sub storyline. And then that true to life incident ends up getting cut anyway, or you end up Mm -hmm. um, compressing two characters into one or cutting one, creating a new one. So then all of that. Mm -hmm isn't even in the, the, you know, the final draft. Mm -hmm. So I think just trusting that, I I think whatever you can do to not get hung up or to Mm -hmm. let yourself be free on the page, because there's so many other things holding us Mm -hmm. back anyway. With Alejandra, for example, as you were making your way through this story, was was there ever a, a point where you put some of your own experience into her story and then felt like she was going to do something based on that experience that's different than what you, Patty, would have done. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, you know, so that first off, the letter that you refer to is only is only for yeah special galley receivers. Okay, okay. Cool, cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I think it goes down to emotional truth, right? Um, so everything I think that Alejandra has experienced has um, or most of what she's experienced are emotional truths that I share. But some examples are, you know, Alejandra is in her senior year at a progressive prep school in the city. It's called Quaker Oats Prep, um, and it is inspired by Swarthmore. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Our shared alma mater. <laughs> we're both Swatties. And and so the, there were things that were happening there. So the specific details were not ex- exactly the same, but the emotional truths were. So... Um, I, I think this won't spoil anything, but Alejandra is subject to this diversity assembly. There's a microaggression that happens, and the the school Quaker Oats Prep reacts with this kind of knee jerk reaction of, "We will stage this um, diversity assembly." And for someone like Alejandra, and for someone like me who was born born and raised in Queens, you know, we didn't grow up with PC language, but we grew up with this sense of what feels authentic, what feels genuine, and what mm-hmm. feels fake. Mm-hmm. And I think our barometer for what feels genuine and fake is very different from the barometer of someone who was weaned at a prep school mm-hmm. or who is in an academic setting or, if I may say, performs wokeness. Yeah. And for me personally, I and I think Alejandra shares this, like the one moment where she says, you know, we had this neighbor, his name was Mr. M- Mr. You know, Mr. Um, McFadden, I think I think I think that was the Irish name mm-hmm. I fell upon. And she's like, he was old and crusty and he he kept calling us that Chinese family. Right. I, I didn't have a specific Mr. McFadden. Watching his name you you revise so much in a novel and I can't remember if I f- if I landed on that last name. But You uh, know, I this is I was taking screenshots as I was reading the 
book, and I think I maybe highlighted that section. Let me see if I did. Yes, Mr. McFadden. <laughs> <laughs> Good. I, I'm and the authority to, of my own novel because it'd be super embarrassing if I weren't. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I screenshotted that part because it was one of my favorite sequences. Do you want to read it? Sure. From there. Mr. McFadden used to live down the hall from us. He was one of the last white residents in our building, and he always referred to us as that Chinese family, which was so annoying. Then one day in a blizzard, Mr. McFadden shoveled out Bappy's Oldsmobile after the snowplows blocked him in. Bappy knew it was Mr. McFadden because he saw the wet shovel outside the door. Mr. McFadden didn't make a, a show about it the way some people can be so grubby about trying to get credit for doing the right thing. Bappy nodded thanks. Ma left some fruit outside his door, and Mr. McFadden continued to call us that Chinese family. That's being from Queens. What do you mean by that's being from Queens? It means not not hiding behind fancy words. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think when you have Queens more than any other place, actually in in the world, it's the most ethnically diverse place on the planet. There are over 300 languages spoken, and you have all these communities butting right up against each other, right? They don't even speak the same language. Their mastery of English may be tenuous. And so there you have to find a lowest common denominator. Um, In the case of my family, it was just shouting, right? Just Mm -hmm. shouting at (laughs) each other. And I think this is why New Yorkers are so loud, right? You're like, ah, just get them, get the message across. And so I think, especially when you're from a place like Queens or or any of the outer boroughs or from New York City or a diverse place like that, you don't have time for BS. You don't have time for pretty words because time is money. You need to survive. You need to get through like the next hour to the next day to the next year. And so, yeah, you might be rough, rough, you know, around the edges. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even if you have like economic success, you're still not going to be polished. You're still going to be like some degree of whether it's working class or you're not going to be accepted by the the Gatsbyan elites, you know. Well, not Gatsby himself, but the other ones, right? right? right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And in that little passage, you know, there's the non-PC thing, like throwing around the wrong term, Archie Mm -hmm. Bunker style. Um, There's the doing of a gesture and not being very showy and grubby about mm-hmm, it. And mm-hmm. I found that in all my dealings in academia and being, I guess, quote unquote, an academic myself now, there is so much of this posturing like, oh, wait, I'm doing this nice thing, mm-hmm. but let me make sure that I'm it's virtual signaling. Right. Yeah. Um, but when I was growing up, we didn't do that. Mm-hmm. You hold open a door for someone and you don't then turn around and like wait for the thank you. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I'm going to do this thing and carry on because you don't want to stop and make a show of it. So Mr. McFadden not even saying something is already another example of Queens, right? Right. And then the mom, Ma, who, like, doesn't then, like, write some effusive letter on her potpourri stationery. Uh-huh. That's also being from Queens where you don't do that. Instead, you do this pragmatic thing, fruit, doing this thing that can be consumed and that's healthy. <laughs> mm-hmm. And also kind of Asian. Uh, Asian people are always giving fruit. Like that <laughs> gesture. And then not making a big thing about it. And then they don't even talk about it. And then Mr. McFadden still calls him the wrong thing. Because that's, I feel like in Queens, always there's a the comedy of errors, right? Right. So, uh, But that's also real. That's real to who he is. Yeah. And, I mean, the thing I, the one of the reasons I, I marked this passage myself is it made me think about what's important to the characters in this scene is their identity as neighbors, not their identity as people whose, like, families come from certain specific countries. They are neighbors in Queens, and this is what neighbors do. It just made me think about, you know, I've lived in the same apartment building for 12 years. 
I don't know any of my neighbors. I don't know any of them. And I hear the conversations that people have in the elevator, and they remind me a lot of the way the Odis talk (laughs) (laughs) at at Alejandra's school. But we don't know each other. You know, if my car was snowed in or, like, I was locked out of my apartment. You'd be SOL. (laughs) I'd be SOL. There's actually, you're making me remember, there's a woman who lives down the hall from me shortly after she moved in. She did get locked out of her place. She came and knocked on my door. She was in tears. She was like, can I borrow your phone? I'm locked out of my place. I was like, yes, of course. I handed her my phone. She made this call. She got let back in. That was five years ago. I've seen her so many times in the hallway since then. Not a word exchanged. Not a word exchanged. It's so not Queens. (laughs) Dude, she should have like, she should have had a Oh, like a basket of fruit on your door. Yes. <laughs> if it were me, I would have I would have done that. But then <laughs> then I would be fraught. I'd be like, what if he's allergic to like right. clementines and then he breaks into a hive and then I'd be like, oh, maybe I should buy chocolate. But what if he goes out of town and then it melts? Oh, maybe a bottle of wine. What if he's recovering? Ah, right, yeah. right, right. <laughs> yeah, who knows? Maybe she was going through that. That, that would be my journey. <laughs> <laughs> Mine too. Mine too. But a lot of what Alejandra's dealing with in the book is... Imposter syndrome, certainly, but also a sense. There's also this whole thing about uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but how she has alitude or a- <laughs> yeah, alitude, both, which yeah. is like her queen's kind of like, like I'm just gonna call it like I see it right now, <laughs> <laughs> and she's worried about letting that out because she's worried it'll be too much for people. But in almost every situation in the book where she really lets somebody have it and says like, "This is what's up." Even if they're a little thrown by it at first, even if it's too, to use your phrase, rough around the edges, they always come around to being like, I'm glad you said that. Thank you, Sam. And and also, if I may point out or out your demographic, thank you. You're being a white person saying that actually makes me feel seen because <laughs> oh. part of me is like, oh, snap. Like, did I did I just offend all, <laughs> no. all of these people or or did they do they think she's got too much altitude? There is speaking of a details from your own life. Actually, that was crib from my own life because. <laughs> oh, really? OK. Tell, tell me more. I was more. at an academic conference in, at an early job in publishing and um and ended up out shooting pool with some other academics at this conference, and I was I was given some sass, and they're mm-hmm. like, "Oh, patitude," and, mm-hmm. and hence oh, the patitude. term patitude <laughs> was born. And I'm like, "Should I give it to? Has Allah earned the right for yeah, altitude, altitude?" Um, so the, yeah, there, <laughs> there, I gave myself permission, I guess, for her to use that real life um, detail, but um. So in terms of other things that were true, like a, a lot of those kinds of microaggressions that Allah faces, she's a 17-year-old senior in high school. And sadly, a lot of it is actually drawn from my career in publishing, my career as a, as a novelist, my career as a professor in, a, in an English department. And it's sad. Mm-hmm. Um, and I go to high schools, you know, I speak at a lot of schools, and students come up to me and they're like, wow, you know, that that's my experience some have read it with their their parents, and the parents are like, is it like this? And they're like, uh, yeah. So mm-hmm. um, I, I'm just sad that I'm still fighting some of these same battles yeah. that a 17-year-old will. Plenty more to come with Patricia Park right here on The Midnight Disease. We'll be back after a short break. You're listening to WALT.
Hey folks, just a quick reminder that if you're listening to the show and you feel like there's something I missed or something the conversation makes you think about that you'd like to share, I would love to hear from you. Send me an email at midnight at walt.fm. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. ask you about the style in which the book is written, because I found that really fascinating. It feels, just because you mentioned that you have written characters' diary entries before, the book has this almost diaristic quality to it, to my eye, where it feels like Alejandra is speaking to us, but it also sort of feels like she's speaking to herself, um, as though she's wanting to, like, make note of these events at this pivotal time in her life because she knows they're important even though she's not totally sure what to make of them just yet. Like, it's very interesting to me that it's written mostly in the present tense. So you get the sense that she's kind of like processing all this stuff in real time. Tell me about the space that her narration fits into. Like, who did, how, who did you imagine her delivering this narration to? Well, one of the conventions of, of YA fiction is immediacy of, of an experience. Present verb tense was a very deliberate craft choice mm-hmm. because you're trying to recreate. With teenage protagonists, there are so many firsts, right? First mm-hmm. time they fall in love, first date, first prom, first time they apply to a college, get rejected, get accepted. Um, mm-hmm. And it's the precipice of them transitioning from childhood into adulthood. So, you know, those are certain um, conventions I'm I'm working with. But one of the things that I had to handle just from like a, a story challenge was it is a building stormon. It's a it's a novel of education. It's a coming of age. Mm-hmm. So Alejandra cannot be in the same place on page one that she is on the last page. Right. Because she will have grown. So the kinds of insights or things that the talking back or the speaking up for herself, like you said, like when she finally gets to say her piece, I had to figure out a way to make her have agency, mm-hmm. but make her also be believable and uh-huh. true to the to her to the character that mm-hmm. I've created. Going back to our, our earlier points, so what I did was I would have her dialogue or lack thereof. Someone would be saying something, and her either hedging response or lack of response or kind of polite response, and then the interiority can kind of go wild. Yeah. And that's something I learned from Charlotte Bronte, um, mm-hmm. where and when you think about um, 
Victorian society and Jane Eyre couldn't be like, F you, Mr. Rochester. Right. Like, I'm not going up to that that attic with you or like, I'm not going to, uh-huh. you know, <laughs> you still owe me 50 francs, you know? Right, right. <laughs> um, she couldn't say that. But you'll see kind of Jane's muted or, uh, or societally dictated response. And then that first person narration is a place where she can, there's a tension there and mm-hmm. where she can kind of respond her tr- in her true self. Right. Right. Which has the effect of bringing us closer to them as a protagonist, because we all have internal monologues of our own and things that we know that we shouldn't say out loud, but can't deny that we are thinking in the moment. And you even give us, there's a great, I won't say the context of it, but there's a great moment towards the end of the book where Alejandra accidentally says out loud the kind of thing that she usually just thinks. And... That moment is so gratifying because for the previous 200-some pages, we have experienced thoughts like that as her inner monologue. So we know that it's very authentic because you've introduced us to that register of her personality. Yeah, and I I think that might be a moment, you you know, when when you think about other craft choices that a writer could have made, uh, what if it were just third-person omniscient or what if... It were just a screenplay, and mm-hmm. we only get the externalized action or the mm-hmm. dialogue. Then when she finally does say her piece at this party, you know, two-thirds or more into the novel, you're like, wait, that came out of left field mm-hmm. versus mm-hmm. having been on that interior journey um, yeah. with Alejandra. And I think that's one of the beauties of fiction mm-hmm. and particularly first-person um, novels that you can you can experience something unfolding in real time along with the character. Yeah. Another sort of like method writing question I had for you. Alejandra is in this creative writing class, um, and there is a professor named Jonathan Brooks James. James Brooks Jonathan. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. All the permutations. I went through like 20 or 30 permutations, Uh so I don't even remember. JBJ. JBJ, as he is called. Yeah. um, In the book. And he's a great character. You know, he's sitting in front of the class and he's like reading his own novel manuscript while the (laughs) students are (laughs) writing. It's great. Um, He is famous for having written this like 700 plus page book about Brooklyn. So and and at a certain point you quote from the book. So how much of that book did you write? <laughs> Thank you for remembering that quote because I had to, I taught myself a new word, murine. Yes. Murine. Uh-huh. I don't even know how M U R I N E. It's like the qualities of being mouse like, mm-hmm. like bovine for cow and so forth. Oh. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm tickled by a writer like John Irving who will just include whole chapters from these fictional works that mm-hmm. his characters are writing. Um, what was delightful about creating Jonathan Brooks James, JBJ's, A, you know, he's a satire of all the literary Jonathans, right? Mm-hmm. All the literary Jonathans of Brooklyn and New York. Yeah, one of whom went to Swarthmore. <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> he shall not be named slash is very easily Googleable. <laughs> or J Friends. <laughs> um, and, you know, actually, that was another example of something drawn from my own life. You know, when I worked in publishing, it seemed like. All, well, for for one, all the Jonathans, all the white Jonathans were getting published and that they were given this big space, like 734 pages mm-hmm. to kind of manspread across the page. And uh, <laughs> there, this was a moment where a lot of female writers were starting to say, like, we, you know, we are writing shapely, svelte fiction. You know, we are 
being told to edit, edit down. And then yet these other writers can just, yeah, man, essentially manspread across the page. And Alejandra's like, oh, you know, went on for 734 pages. I kind of got the point by page two. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't write too much more of beyond the the, the mm-hmm. like short passage that I fictionally wrote. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew the gist of the story. I mm-hmm. knew I knew the whole story. It was yeah. it was a story. It was a novel that didn't have shape. Mm-hmm. It was very Henry Jamesian kind of, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. where a a, a a gesture or a glance would be exchanged, and then four pages would go by, <laughs> <laughs> and the story kind of doesn't the the engine doesn't chug along. Mm-hmm. Um, so I definitely felt the experience of having read those kinds of, yeah. not all the Jonathan like there. I like some of those Jonathans, sure, you know, sure, yeah. yeah. I think yeah. Leatham is like doing really, you know, I I, I love Motherless Brooklyn, and mm-hmm. um, I'm I'm sure he would he's poking as much fun at the others. Yeah, yeah. of course. <laughs> well, and you have to love it to make fun of it, you know? Yeah. Like, So I, it, it definitely didn't come across as you being dismissive of it, but it did come across as you appreciating <laughs> the absurdity of it. <laughs> <laughs> much the same as I have to say, this line of conversation that we've gotten onto reminds me of their Laurel character, Alejandra's best friend, who they have a couple of cycles throughout the book of being really close and then being pushed apart by things that happen, some of which are brought on by Laurel's performative wokeness. And you really take care to make space for the fact that Laurel's in a tough spot too, that there's a lot of pressure to do the wokeness performance well. Because there's a thought that if you can't do that as a white person, you don't have value. And that that's not like harder than what Alejandra has to go through, but that it is a struggle that Laurel is living with. It just struck me as such a generous act on your part as storyteller to give Laurel that because she does some really gross things. I really appreciate that, Sam. Thank you. Um, you know, in 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 class once, um, I was I, I made this passing comment to my students. I'm like, we are so lucky to be writing right now. Like, mm-hmm. if we if we were writing in a different time, we you know, you say the wrong word and it'd send you to the gulags. And I'm like, ha ha ha! <laughs> and it was dead silence <laughs> in the room, right? Yeah, yeah. And I have predominantly white students, um, and. For me as a writer, it's important to get every experience right and to not kind of otherize or caricaturize um, mm-hmm. these kinds of experiences. But, you know, I'm really empathetic to my students who are just really struggling to be a quote-unquote good person in mm-hmm. this time. And, I mean, I'm, I'm also not saying that I'm not seeing the flaws and, and these other – yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but I I think that there's at least in especially in like YA spaces I'm not seeing as much of these kinds of spaces or moments to to think about what if you are struggling to navigate like how to yeah how to be an ally how to be an authentic one and yeah Laurel does some like really foot in the mouth stuff. One of the experiences I had reading this book as a 41 year old person who does not have children is I still felt myself really emotionally present in the story. Because it is grounded in this very recent experience of grief and loss that Alejandra has had. Is it okay to say who she's lost? Yeah, yeah. She's just recently lost her father. One of the things that she's having to process is not just that she has lost her father, which is obviously a big deal, 
but that in losing her father, certain realities about her mother and father's relationship are coming to light. The perhaps not as romantic nature of it is, is starting to come into focus. And I just found that really connective the entire time, even when, you know, the story is more about, like, high school drama. It felt so, like, rooted in that piece of it. And I wanted to ask where that part came from. I know you said originally the book was about the father. Is that the origin of the weight of that piece of the story? I think so. I think Bobby's, um kind of shadow does, um, is cast across these pages as Alejandra's trying to figure out who she is um, and try to move forward um, and not let his death and the circumstances surrounding it. She thinks one thing, her mother thinks another. Um, She's trying to figure out who she is as a daughter without a father now. Um, And I'm interested in these kinds of relationships out of loneliness sometimes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, In the case of Alejandra's parents, they were both immigrants who are ethnic Koreans, but they were Argentine immigrants. They were, you know, Mm -hmm. raised in Argentina. And they are both kind of displaced and lonely in New York. The Argentina behind them has just finished up the Dirty War and then the Falcons War or the Malvinas War, depending on what point of view you're, whether you're British or Argentine, and then hyperinflation. So Mm -hmm. it's like they could not go back. And as somebody who's, who's Travel to other countries or lived in other countries, you feel such an acute sense of homeless, uh, excuse me, homesickness. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes you cling to a country person that maybe you wouldn't have been hanging mm-hmm. out with in, in the past. And that those feelings were really um, part of of uh, thinking about their story. But again, you know, with a with a novel, yeah, maybe three hundred pages are published, but you generate more than ten times that amount. And oh, yeah. One scene that really stayed with me from those early pages of of Papi's story and and Veronica, who is Ale's mom, uh, there was a, I'd written a scene where they all go to um, Rockaway Beach, and they get into a fight because Juan forgot the umbrella, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And they're already hurting for money and. And he's like, well, we can just rent another one. And Veronica is like, this is that's so ridiculous. You know, what mo- with what money? And it was initially like the second chapter, but it just weighed down the story mm-hmm. and interrupted that kind of fresh and funny YA voice. So then I, I ended up making it into a photo and then splitting up little pieces. And mm-hmm. then, yeah, yeah, you know, like so much goes on the cutting mm-hmm. room floor. Um and and so then you build out these whole storylines so that only maybe a whisper or a suggestion of that relationship or of that moment um, is what remains in, in the published pages. Yeah. Well, you spoke earlier in our conversation about the fact that you had this whole other novel version of this that was about Papi. And then... Now I'm self-conscious about the way I just pronounced that. Perfect. Did I pronounce it, it right? It was perfect. Okay. <laughs> okay. And, and that's me, like, with my gringa Spanish, you know? <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, so you had, you had a whole novel version of the story that's about his character that had a 60-page sequence that's Alejandra, and now that 60 pages has been built out into imposter syndrome. Yep. And you made reference to this Middlebury experience that you had, and uh, you've clearly done all this research on the history of Argentina. <laughs> You've been living with this story in several different registers for how many years at this point? It first came to me in like 2009. My God. When I was cheating on Rhee Jane with Mm -hmm. like this random story of uh, Uh Argentine, Korean Argentine 
yeah. kid. Yeah. So that's almost Guy. 15 years. Yeah. It's almost 15 years. Why do you think it wouldn't, this story wouldn't leave you alone? And now that you have published this version of it, how do you feel? I'm so grateful, actually, that it even exists mm -hmm. because I despaired. When you're in the thick of it as a writer, you know, you measure progress by sentences, page, you know, paragraphs, pages, and storylines and scenes. You know, that, that's the way I track things. But from the outside, I published Rejane in 2015, and then eight years went by. Mm -hmm. And then imposter syndrome came out. So it looked like, what the hell were you doing, Patty Park? Like you were just twiddling your thumbs or you I felt like an imposter. Um, even though I was doing all this behind the scenes work, I was I had written that other novel, Chino. Um, I was actually unsuccessful in 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 selling it, uh, went back and rewrote it again, once again was unsuccessful in selling it. And I just I despaired. Um and even though I was writing every day and making progress on the outside. It looked like there was just this mm -hmm. moment of silence or a mm -hmm. long pause. Um, mm -hmm. In some ways, I thought my, yeah, my career was over. So I got over my imposter syndrome by writing imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm so grateful that like stories about Korean Americans from, from Queens, mm -hmm. young women like just trying to figure it out, mm -hmm. that there's even a space for it. I, I have to tell you a, an idiotic white person thought I just had hearing you say that, which is you said like, this is a story about a young Korean-American girl trying to figure it out. And it just made me realize how many stories there are about young white girls or young white boys just trying to figure it out. And we don't ask those stories to be anything more than that. Like, I've, I've been watching Gilmore Girls for the first time. And there are some similarities between Rory Gilmore and Alejandra Kim. And the idea that a young white girl just like figuring it out is sort of unquestioned as a valid narrative. But as Alejandra points out in the book, I think it's Alejandra in the book, talks about the idea of an, the importance of a story about an immigrant character who's not getting, you know, like trafficked or like escaping being kidnapped or like dealing with some intense trauma. But it's just like, I'm just trying to figure out how we do life seems revolutionary. I'm glad you picked up on that, Sam, um, because I don't think this conversation is being had enough. Mm -hmm. um, I know within the BIPOC writing community, you know, we have a lot of chatter among ourselves that we have to be extra. Mm -hmm. It's not enough. Mm -hmm. it, good enough is not good enough. You have to, it has to be and, and, and. Mm -hmm. Not just a coming of age about a young girl trying to figure it out. That and this and that, mm -hmm. you know. There's the publishing pressure for trauma porn and so forth, and mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. and also just by your even recognizing that difference in narrative or differences of expectations mm -hmm. means a lot, Sam. Um, why can't we just have a story of a brown girl who goes to prom and all she wants to do is like have mm -hmm. you know her dreamy date, mm -hmm. something that would be the kind of the privileged realm of maybe white narratives, if mm -hmm. you will, so that the racial cultural kind of storyline is not centered so much as being a young girl navigating the world is a story that's centered. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'm, 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 you know, going to a lot of conferences and uh, people are having these conversations. So I think we're going to start to see this um, yeah. even more in the, in the zeitgeist. And is it fair to say that this kind of rallying cry that you're describing does that have to do with what kept you coming back to this story? Because I have to say, Patty, it's really remarkable to hear you talk about it's 
15 years ago, let's just call it 15 years ago, yeah. you have an you're in the midst of writing a different book. <laughs> that is also <laughs> unpublished and has no contract that I got a full that I lived in Korea for two years to do research. Yeah. On. <laughs> we didn't even get to read Jane. But you have so then you have this book side piece. <laughs> <laughs> I know it was totally a side. It was the affair, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That you're writing. You get that side piece book up to the level of a proposal. Take it out. It doesn't sell. I'd finished writing it, so I had 350 pages. Okay. You'd written the whole book. Yeah. You take the whole book out. It doesn't sell. You rewrite that book. Mm -hmm. Take it out again. Didn't sell. Doesn't sell. You rewrite it now a third time, and now it is this book. Like, why not abandon this, this story and these characters? I think it goes back to this feeling of responsibility of stories that are untold. Mm -hmm. Also, the some of the feedback I was getting, you know, about the market and, you know, is there a market for, oh, there's not a market for immigrant stories. My agent's going to kill me for saying any of this, but <laughs> I was hearing that kind of feedback and I did have a crisis of confidence for sure. Like, am I not a, I'm not a good writer, you know, is that, but I, I was lucky enough where the feedback wasn't talking so much about the literary merit. It was about the market. Uh-huh. And, well, you know, we uh, we can't get the sales team excited. Things like that. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, again, because my driving force is, like, no one's telling our stories. <laughs> what the hell? What the hell's the point in immigrating, suffering, you know, going through racial melancholia, um, displacing yourself, Finally achieving economic success, hopefully, for the next generation and so forth, when then you have no cultural power or agency, really. You're still invisible on the media landscape. I don't want the next generation to, like, feel um, in invisible or, or feel like, mm -hmm. oh, well, like, we're still not seeing ourselves. The closest thing that rounds up to me is, is uh, you know... Jane Eyre or right, something. Right, right, right. Rory so, Gilmore. Like. Yeah, Rory <laughs> Gilmore. Um, and I think it's a little bit of an obsessive personality, too. Like, you just keep returning. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, this is, you know, and tying back to midnight disease. Yeah. It's the midnight disease. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you didn't give up. Thanks, Sam. Oh, thank you so much. Midnight Disease is hosted, produced, mixed, and edited by me, Sam Dingman. My thanks to Patricia Park for joining me on the show today. Keep an eye out for her new novel, What's Eating Jackie O, coming next year. And visit patriciapark.com to pick up a copy of Imposter Syndrome and Other Confessions of Alejandra Kim, as well as Patricia's debut novel, Rejane. Special thanks this week to Christopher Cam at Penguin Random House. Our show art is by M.K. Cummins. And don't forget, to leave us a review in Apple Podcasts or Spotify if you like what you hear on the show. We'll be back next week with another great conversation. And in the meantime, thank you for letting your madness ride with mine. I'm Sam Dingman. Keep driving, Midnight Cruisers.
You're listening to WALT. Homegrown. Homemade radio.